What's new listeners? I'm Andre Howell, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you want to move for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. Today, we're breaking down the 2016 drama-slash-thriller-slash-horror movie with a bit of sci-fi stashed in there, Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is very loosely a standalone sequel to 2008's Cloverfield. And jumping into the guest chairs for this movie talk, a couple of the co-hosts of Soul Wizard Podcast, which covers movies and a bit of TV, Joey DiCarlo and Michaelis Mark Reagans. Say hello, you two. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Arthur, thank you so much for inviting us on, man. It's so good to be here. Yay. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, just wanted to say hi to everybody out there in podcast land. And much like Mark said, thanks for having us on, Arthur, so much. Really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And Joey has actually been on here before to talk about Kung Fu Panda. And then, Mike, this is your first time here. So how, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. You know, I love to talk about movies, so I'm always glad to uh, chat with anyone about movies that are uh, kind of in my wheelhouse. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited for this. I'm very excited as well. I'm just have, I'm having a rough day today. Uh, this is going to sound silly, but my friend and I went out to eat this afternoon and I had pizza at this like fancy pizza place. So these giant slices of pizza, like the size of your laptop. And then the pizza has weird stuff on it. So mine had a bunch of French fries on top of it. Oh, and it was great. But I'm so thirsty now. The thirst is real right now. I'm like struggling. I've drank like two glasses of water since I sat down to get ready to record. So I'm going to try my best. But if I sound ultra thirsty today, you know what's happening. Okay, I don't think I've ever heard of French fries being a pizza topping before, but I'm intrigued. It was good. It was good. My fat kid senses were tingling when I walked in the store, but, you know, uh, I'm thirsty as hell now. Okay, thirsty, okay. <gasps> well, before we get into the movie stuff, I do want to say uh, that we have a couple letterbox members here. They do have their own top fours, and I would say that uh, Joey, his top four is The Empire Strikes Back. Rock and Roll, High School, Neon, Genesis, Evangelion, The End of Evangelion, and Grease 2, <laughs> which I still have to see someday. I, I highly suggest you check it out. <laughs> I will. I've, I've heard very interesting things about it. it it's a, one of the best bad movies of all time. You'll never look at Step Ladders the same way again, I promise. <laughs> Step Ladders, Okay. Okay, we'll see, we'll see. And then Mark's top four on the box is Star Wars A New Hope, North by Northwest, 1989's The Killer, and The Untouchables. Yeah, some real movies on there, not this Grease 2 <laughs> nonsense. Don't make me get my Grease 2 steelbook out and throw it at you, Mark. Cinema. Grease cinema. Exactly. And North by Northwest, that is one of the Hitchcock movies. I don't need to see. Yes, that, I mean, still am more of it than want to see. It is one of the best Alfred Hitchcock movies ever made. It it doesn't have that kind of scare factor that people want in like Psycho or The Birds. This one is straight uh, man with mistaken identity on the run spy thriller romance. It has all of the good popcorn stuff in it. It is such a good yes. movie. Definitely one of the best uh, Hitchcock movies. Good, good. Excited for that. Well, we've covered now your letterbox top four, so 
if I introduce you to, on the show to our listeners, so let's dive into 10 Cloverfield Lane, a movie that I saw a few years ago. It was like, maybe it was like five years ago, maybe six years ago for the first time, and I just remember really enjoying it. So I'm glad that we're able to cover it today, see how it holds up. And this movie, I'll give it a trivia for it first and say that it was directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who also directed 2022's Prey, the Black Mirror episode Playtest, one of my favorite Black Mirror episodes, the Portal short film Portal's No Escape, the pilot episode of Prime Video's The Boys, and the pilot episode of Peacock series adaptation of Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. Lots of looks for Prey, by the way. I only saw Prey at all those, but Prey was was awesome. Oh, Absolutely. you saw the first you saw the first episode of The Boys, though, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there you go. So but you I mean, it. I'm talking about movie wise. I only saw Prey. Was that his only other movie, though? Uh, yes. I mean, surprisingly, as a, a movie, he's got Black Mirror, he's got the Portal short film, but yeah, as a movie, surprisingly, he's only done Prey and then Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is yeah. strange. I mean, good for him, but I guess I've seen his entire filmography then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much. You let's see. That, uh, let's let's see a movie where a young girl has to fight a creature. <laughs> Part two. Part two. He said it in high school. I'll be there day one. High school, yes. Seriously, though, he should be directing more because he's got strong work here. He's a strong director, and it's like, why aren't you getting more work, though? That's that's odd. And this was written by Josh Campbell and Matthew Stukin. The two of them have uh, writing credits for Night of the Zodiac and, and Horizon Line. Wait, wait, wait. Arthur, did you see the Knights of the Zodiac live-action movie? I did not see it, but I've heard about it. I wanted to see it so bad, and I wanted to do it on the podcast. Me and Aubrey both loved the anime back in the day. Mark, I, by the way, I almost went anime and waited for you to put the drop in, but uh, <laughs> I I wanted to see it really bad, and it was only playing in, like, 500 theaters, and it was, like, a two-hour drive to go oh. see it. And I knew it was going to be terrible, so of course we didn't do it on the podcast. But I was, I was hoping you had seen it so you could give us your quick review, but I think no one saw it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those movies, I feel like some people would call it a fake movie. <laughs> the, the trailer did give off that vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But yes, uh, Knights of the Zodiac, Horizon Line, and Horizon Line also looks like kind of like a fake movie. And then, oh, also, Josh Campbell also did the editing for The Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. I've got love for the, for the Narnia movies. I barely remember Prince Caspian. I definitely didn't see the third one. Mark, you oh. didn't see the third uh, okay. Narnia movie, did you? Yeah, I saw it in theaters. <laughs> oh, I, I saw the third one in theaters, too. Yeah, yeah I remember. Because the thing when I think about that movie is always uh, Will Poulter. That's what I think. Yes, about. exactly. He was so annoying in that movie. He made yes, a yes. he made an impression. So it's nice to see him finally work his way out of that. Yes, yes. He he grew. He, you know, he he's got a flourishing career. He's on. Yes. He, you know, he had a, he had a bit role on the Bear, and he was also in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, and he's doing a bunch of stuff now. With someone. Yeah, but there, there's always going to be a part of me that remembers him as that annoying kid from that Narnia movie. The brat. Right. The little brat. Yep. Uh, Eustace. That, that was his name. Eustace. Yes. Uh, but, yes. Okay, so Josh Campbell and Matthew Stukin, they were two of the screenwriters. The third one, surprisingly enough, is Damien Chazelle. 
yeah, the filmmaker behind La La Land, Whiplash, Babylon, and First Man. Somehow he's one of the screenwriters here. Which is like, yeah, yeah good, for good for him. That blew that blew me away when I saw his name come up because um, you know, I only know him from like Whiplash and La La Land. I didn't think he had anything else prior to that. Um, but then checking out this movie, I realized that he he was actually supposed to direct this movie. Like he wrote the script and he was gonna direct it. Uh, but he wound up getting funding for Whiplash, and he left this movie and went and did Whiplash. So, good on him. Oh, yeah. I mean, hey, you know what? If you're going to do Whiplash, which is like a favorite movie of mine, holy crap, mm-hmm. that was such an anxiety-inducing movie. But, yeah, that's a great <laughs> a great move there. Why didn't he just combine the two, and then the aliens could have been outside of the bunker trying to teach her how to play drums? <laughs> oh, the drums. Yes, got to do the drumming. The drums, bloody fingers. Oh, dear. Just let J.K. Simmons just yell at monsters for two hours. <laughs> oh, that's dead sweet. Oh, and then the budget is between thirteen and fifteen million dollars. At the box office, this grossed seventy-two point two million dollars domestically and thirty-eight point one million dollars internationally for a worldwide total of one hundred ten point two million dollars. Pretty damn wow. good, yeah. yeah. Cracked a hundred mil. That's amazing. And this was this movie was originally developed from a script called The Cellar. But under production by Bad Robot, it was turned into a spiritual a, a spiritual sequel to Cloverfield. So it's a part of me that's like, this doesn't really have to be part of the Cloverfield universe. But at the end of the day, I'm not right with it because I feel like that brings more eyes to it. It gives it gives this movie more fame. Well, that was supposed to be the caveat of of Co- Cloverfield after these two movies. The first two movies was it was going to be almost like a Twilight Zone like anthology type thing with the alien invasion kind of being the background to the movie. But uh, all the third movie did really bad, and then it all just fell apart. So. Cloverfield <laughs> paradox. I have yet to see that. I want to see it sometime. Elizabeth Debicki is in it, and other people and i want to see it sometime even though i know it's supposed to be bad Uh, i just want to state for the record that i actually like the third cloverfield (laughs) oh okay okay very interesting you like everything mark (laughs) that's almost true except except for skin and marink (laughs) skin and marink you know i really tried to like that movie i must say but i just it could not i couldn't fully latch on to it but i can appreciate the ambition the creativity yeah, there's, you know, it is a, it's a swing. It's a swing for the fences, but a it just one. did not work for me yeah. at all. It's a big you think, uh You think Margot Robbie was robbed for an Oscar? What about the ceiling from Skinamarink? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the ceiling, the walls, everything. <laughs> the be- best supporting actor, the corner, Skinamarink. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, she was barefoot so it's for most of the movie. And in an interview, she said that in many of the close-up shots that didn't show her feet, she was wearing slip-on shoes or flip-flops. Quentin Tarantino was pumped. <laughs> so pumped. So pumped. Oh. And that's what I have to say initially for the trivia for this movie. So, what are our general thoughts, our general feelings on this non-sportive course? Let's kick off with you, Mike. What are your general thoughts on 10 Cloverfield Lane? So I'm a little bit biased in this because I am a huge J.J. Abrams fan. Love J.J. Abrams. So I was a huge, I was a big fan of the first Cloverfield. Not because necessarily of him, but his name brought me to the movie. 
Uh, but I really enjoyed that movie. I thought everything about it was per- not perfect, but it was great. It had an amazing time watching the first Cloverfield movie. You weren't let down that it wasn't Voltron? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I still laugh at people thinking that he said it's a lion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Because uh, if we were going to make a big budget Voltron movie, the first thing we do is be to release a clandestine trailer and an <laughs> ARG to play to figure out what's going on. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, again, first Cloverfield, amazing marketing because no one really knew what it was. Uh, but once everybody got a taste of it and then they kind of just dropped 10 Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane out of nowhere. So going into it, I'm like, OK, this is part of the Cloverfield universe. And Clover, the first Cloverfield had some, you know, had a pretty cool concept regarding giant monsters. So as I'm watching the movie, I'm like waiting for <laughs> the Cloverfield connection. You know, I'm waiting for the the pieces to fall into place. Um, and it took a while before I, I realized that or that I settled into the fact that this isn't directly like the first movie. And I have to enjoy what's actually happening in front of me right now. Um Otherwise, I'm going to lose the entire movie. So I did enjoy it. I very much enjoyed the whole first 85 minutes of this movie. Oh, okay. Okay. I see you. I see what you're saying, dear. Okay. I see the ending. Okay. I see you. I see you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. It's a good mark. And I, I do want to say, Cloverfield, I watched that first movie. I saw it for the first time yesterday. And I <laughs> really enjoyed that movie, actually. Okay. I, gave it, I, gave it, I gave it four stars on box. It's one nice. of the... One of the more enjoyable found footage for movies I've seen. Yes, definitely. Uh, and in general, I feel like I feel like most of the found footage for movies I've seen so far have been pretty good. At least like good to great, with with uh, creep and wreck being my favorites. Well, I'm sure Joey can find you some that are <laughs> not <laughs> as good. <laughs> I went on a, a found footage kick. Uh, a few months, well, a few months ago, God, we're talking about last year. And for like two and a half weeks, I watched nothing but found footage horror movies. And there's some really bad ones <laughs> out there. But there's some good ones, too. I really liked uh, Strange Land, and um, which was more about still photos that somebody took. Uh, but <laughs> Oh, wait, wait, do you mean Savage Land? Savage Land, there yeah, you go. Strange Land was D. Snyder's terrible horror movie. Okay, sorry, <laughs> Savage Land. Yeah, yeah I, I did see that, and I liked that one. That was, that was actually good. Yeah, I liked that one a lot. They did a really good job with that one. Um, Creepy, eerie. But yeah, there's a lot of really bad, really bad ones out there. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe I've, I feel like I've avoided those so far. You know, so good, we'll see. Good. Going to my journey, I've found for the, the, the Hell House LLC sequels are really bad. So <laughs> don't watch those. Oh. And uh, Horror in the High Desert, a.k.a. Boredom in the High Desert. Oof, oh, no. Watch out. You know. Anyway, uh, Cloverfield. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, so I was a big fan of the first one as well. I, I see me and Mark are older than you, Arthur. So we were um, cognizant for the like marketing campaign and everything that went with that first movie. And that that felt like an event. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a, uh, you know, billion dollar burner at the box office, but it, it, in nerdy circles, it felt like an event. Everybody was talking about the trailers and trying to decipher clues and websites and maps and slusho cups and all sorts of stuff yeah dude it was wild Uh, and there were some really wild theories on what the hell this movie was about but it was great uh i really liked it i've I've watched it once since i got i own it on dvd and i've watched it once since uh i bought it i should probably watch it again but uh you know i don't know how it's going to be divorced of all of that excitement from the arg that went along with it 
but I really liked it when I watched it. And then when this was announced, I was excited as well because, you know, it's a sequel to a movie I liked uh, and I wanted to see what it was all about. And I didn't go see it in the movie theater because we didn't do it on the podcast at the time. Um, I don't. Why did we not do this on the podcast? Wait, wait, did this come out? 2016, you said, right? 2016. Yeah, 2016. Maybe we weren't like super into like movie reviews at that time. Well, we started in 2015 doing movie reviews, but they weren't 100% consistent. So now you got me like wondering like why we did this. (laughs) Why did we not just see Cloverfield? Or why did we not review 10 Cloverfield Lane? Hmm. Oh, no. I don't know. Hold on. Sorry, you're going to have to edit all this out, Arthur. (laughs) (laughs) We're probably watching. You got me asking questions, too. Me asking questions. When did this come out? March, you said? Anybody? Uh, Uh, 10 10 Cloverfield? Yeah. Uh, March 11, 2016. Yes. Uh, I have no freaking idea. Cause it's not like there's anything else that came out that week. <laughs> we, oh, talking, no. we must have been talking about, uh, I don't know, St. Patrick's Day or something. <laughs> something dumb. All right. Hold on. This is, that, that is so bathroom. Probably not back far <laughs> enough. We're going we're gonna to scroll back. Poor <laughs> fucking Arthur has to edit this all out of the podcast. <laughs> it's okay. I'm a master editor. Okay. We commiserate with you for that, so I completely understand. Load more. Oh, this is going to take a while. <laughs> Load more. Always love to hear that. Load more. All right. I don't know. I don't know how we were reviewing that week or instead or talking about, but it certainly wasn't this movie. So I didn't see it right away. It was when it hit, ooh, just to age myself. Uh, I just want to remind your listeners, I'm very hip, cool, wow, and now. But when it hit home video, I watched it. And uh, I liked it a lot. I like I like the movie a lot. I I love I, I kind of feel kinship with uh, Robert Kirkman, who wrote Walking Dead, because his idea behind Walking Dead, the excitement for him when he created Walking Dead was I don't care about what happened in the actual movie. I want to see what happens after the movie's over. So he was excited in the minutia and boredom of people <laughs> surviving in these type of situations. Like he wants to see like, where do they go to the bathroom? Where do, what do they do for food every day? Like, what are they doing every day? And I love that idea too. So being able to see a movie where they're in the bunker and they're just having their day-to-day stuff and what they do to me was like, ah, oh, this is amazing. And then, <laughs> you know, and the movie's good on top of that too. And I, I'm not a big fan of uh, Mary, uh, what's her name? Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Oh, yes, oh. I'm not a, a Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan. Uh, me and Mark famously argue about this on the podcast all oh. the time. I will play it up though, just to make Mark angry. So, um, <laughs> She's definitely better than a soft four, Mark. I'll tell you that. But, you know, <laughs> I think your quote was a soft six. <laughs> okay. She's a, okay. Well, she's definitely a soft six. Um, oh, just to make just to make Arthur's podcast extremely misogynistic and gross. Um, but... Oh, dear. I must say, I have love for her. <laughs> I'm not a fan. Um, but I think some of that comes from I don't like Scott Pilgrim either. So um, now that all your mm. listeners hate me. Um, you know what? Hey, you know what? I'm also not the biggest Scott Pilgrim fan. Right, 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 right. There you go. See, 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 Mark. See, you, you both are crazy, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you know, not a fan of her too much, but uh, I do like this movie quite a bit. And I actually like the entire movie as opposed to Mark only liking 80% of it. So I'm a, I'm a fan. I do like oh. this movie quite a bit. Okay. Okay. Good, good. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to open up my general thoughts by saying that I side with Joey here and liking the whole movie. Yes. <laughs> Mark, take that. Including the ending. 
But yeah, this movie, I again, I enjoyed it back when I first saw it years ago, and then we're watching it now. I was amazed by how well it was able to hold up. How it just it builds up this atmosphere. It's eerie, but it also knows how to be genuinely dramatic. and knows how to be pretty funny sometimes. Sometimes it's like oh, you know, some some authentic laughs, some some chuckles. Other times it's more like oh, oh, oh dark, nervous kind of laughter. And mm-hmm. it's able to it's able to blend all of these different tones together underneath Dan Trachtenberg's direction. You've got this tight script here, and we also have the I love the cinematography from Jeff Cutter. I think that does a great job along with the blocking how the movie blocks. It does a great job at visually presenting the movie, showing you like just like it just makes it visually easy to watch as we're trapped in this bunker, and it shows us like hey, this is where everything is set up. And it just takes us through the physical locations. We've got a trio of performances here from Winstead, from John Goodman, from John Gallagher Jr. that are all impressively fleshing out their characters, creating a great dynamic here between the three characters. Especially like Michelle, I completely forgot how compelling of a character she was. Like watching this movie, I was like, God damn, like, you're such a smart, resourceful character and always, like, thinking how to get out of the, out of the crap you're dealing with. And I feel like if I were to make a list of, like, fa- of favorites, you know, horror final goals, I feel like she would definitely make it to that list. Oh, definitely. Definitely. She'd probably be, you know, six or higher, but, you know. <laughs> you're the worst. Oh, you're the worst. Joey, Joey, I'm going to have to re- adjust your system there. No, no, no. <laughs> And, and John Goodman also, uh, extra kudos to him for his performance and how just how menacing he's able to be in this movie. Because when I first saw this movie years ago, I remember, I remember how shocking it was to watch him because you know, I thought of him as just oh he's the uh, he's Sully from Monsters Inc. or he's Dad from Roseanne. And then I watched this movie and I'm like, oh oh dear, you're terrifying me. <laughs> and that was really great for to, to watch him in that. And even the movie, I also find the movie to be surprisingly feminist. Again, like not only with the way that it presents uh, Michelle as a strong, as, as a strongly written and strongly acted character, but also the way that it weaves these layers of femininity and masculinity into the story, as it presents like Howard as this portrait of toxic masculinity, and then and then Howard as Goodman's character, and then Emmett, played by Gallagher Jr. He's like the non-toxic version of masculinity and just the way like the contrast between those two personalities was really interesting to watch and the dynamic between Michelle and Howard is also interesting to watch for you know reasons that I'll explore more deeply in the plot breakdown. So that was just really fascinating to 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 dive into. And uh, the climax I know that there's ambivalence over the climax from some viewers like Mike. But I really enjoyed it. I, I found it to be quite satisfying for the movie, for, for Michelle's story, and when all, all, of these, like, all of these elements are just so great combined together, it just makes for this strong movie that I think probably exceed, exceeded my expectations for how well it would hold up on the watch. You know, I will agree the ending the ending is what it is. It, it kind of gave me what I was expecting when I sat my butt down in the theater, you know, 
a movie called Cloverfield. I wanted some Cloverfield stuff. And, you know, they kind of gave me that at the ending. And I will admit that the the story, her story works great. Like the ending does not fail her story-wise. But the thing about the ending of this movie is that it's kind of like if you were watching Rocky 1 and you get like this thoughtful, dramatic story of this young boxer trying to make his way and then right at the fight you get rocky four which is like a complete cartoon <laughs> well you have, you, you forgot the part mark where you're not sure if there's actually a boxing match or rocky's nuts the whole movie <laughs> <laughs> right. well that's 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 besides the point i'm talking specifically about the ending of the movie it, there's such a huge the tone shifts so wide and it's not like i said I sat down in the theater. I wanted some Cloverfield stuff. I got Cloverfield stuff. And they were able to take what we know of the Michelle character and kind of amp it up to really have her do something amazingly cool and kind of lucky, actually, uh, during the last part of this movie. So, you know, thematically it works, but I don't know. It's It, it seemed a little too cartoony kind of compared to the rest of the movie it's still okay it's just like the everything leading up to that was done so well so suspenseful once she's getting picked up in a car i'm like i don't know how how suspenseful this is this doesn't feel like uh i i felt more scared for her inside of the bunker basically so that that's just my feeling yeah okay i, I, I can get on board with that i can understand you even if i disagree with you <laughs> Ah, but yes, those are our general thoughts and feelings on this movie. So now, the wind-up score. We offer our wind-up scores. This is where we each give a score that ranges from 0 to 100 for the movie. So, Mike, what is yours? So I was thinking about this a lot. I'm going to say for my score for this one, I'm giving it a 75. I think 75 feels right about... uh, my enjoyment level for this movie. I own the first one, the first Cloverfield. I never got around to getting this one. And I think the couple of journeys that I went on this movie made it okay. Like I don't need to own it. It doesn't need to be in my library. Okay. Okay. That's good. And Zoe? So we grade on a zero to five scale on our show. So I'm like trying to figure out how to convert that into zero to a hundred. <laughs> yes. Do the calculations. I feel like this happens sometimes with my podcast guests. They have to be like, wait, I usually do it on this scale. How do I do it for the wide up score on two cents critic? Yeah. I didn't know there was going to be a math quiz coming on the show. I, I'm in I'm protesting. Um, oh my God, dude. It's it's it, you just doing in increments of 20. Shut up. <laughs> how dare you? Um, so I'm going with uh, 85. 85 seems good to me. Uh, I definitely like it more than Mark because I like the ending, but I, I mean, we'll get into it. But I, I agree with Mark, but I just am like, I don't fucking care. <laughs> so I'm 85. Uh, and, and Mark, I also don't own this on any form of home media, but I will tell you, I was out today with my friend and we were doing some toy hunting and one of the stores we went to carried used games and used movies and they had this on Blu-ray. Oh. And after watching it, I'm like, you know, if I was looking to spend money today, (laughs) I wouldn't be opposed to having this on my shelf. So, yeah, 85 out of 100 for me. Good, good. Yeah, I would be proud, actually, to have to have this on my own home media collection. Very much. Yes, yes. And. My wind-up score, my wind-up score, I'm going to give this an 87 out of 100. I feel like that matches pretty well with the four and a half stars 
but I gave this another box and a heart. I also clicked the heart. I have lots of love for this movie, and I'm glad that it's able to hold up excellently. Oh, it's just a, again a great a great blend of all of, all of these top notch elements, and I think more people should, should check it out. Even in my own film community on Discord, we have uh, we we've got some people who have love for this movie, so which is good to see. Good to see. And that all uh, and and Trachtenberg, please tell me more movies. I feel like he's almost like a Drew Goddard. I feel like, like because Drew Goddard only has a few movies under his belt, and it's like, well, you've done good work, very good work. Give more. Yeah, I love Drew Goddard. Um, he's again, he's one of those directors that he hasn't really struck it big, but he, the stuff that he does in TV is really cool. And uh, he's he wrote a really amazing comic book. There used to be a Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic uh, years ago, and he wrote like an arc in the middle of it. And it is so well done. It's like one of my favorite four-issue comic books ever. I thought he did such an amazing job in it. So he's always been on my radar. I'm waiting for him to do something really, really big other than uh, Bad Times at El Royale <laughs> or whatever that was. Oh, oh, have you seen it? Uh, I still have not seen it. It's on okay. my, my radar, I, but I've heard I highly, so many things. I, ha- I highly recommend it. Oh, recommendation. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. That's on the list. Yeah, it's on my watch list on Letterboxd, but it's like, isn't it almost three hours long? It's like two and a half, is it? Let me double check. Let me double check. Because it's tough because uh, for our show, we, we're watching stuff like once a week. Like once a week. Uh, we, we do, we review movies or a TV show every single week. So it's it's hard sometimes to fit stuff in for pleasure. <laughs> It's right. it's all for yeah. work. I got that. I got Especially that. when it's like two and a half hours long. Yeah, one hundred forty-one minutes. Oof. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a long it's a long run time, but it's worth it. Bad times at El Royale, one of my favorite Neo Noir movies I've seen. All right, it, it going to the top of the list on Arthur's recommendation. All right, well, let me get into my letterbox. <laughs> I guess I'll put it ahead of. Oh. Um... <laughs> Bring it on, cheer or die at the top of the list for you. Yes, yes. I would say it's worth it to bump it up above such a movie. Well, those are our wind-up scores for 10 Cloverfield Lane. So, let's get into the plot breakdown for this movie. So, listeners, if you have not seen it, I recommend pausing the podcast. Go out and watch it ASAP, really. Come on. You don't, you don't even have to watch Cloverfield, the predecessor. Before watching this, you can just watch this one first if you want to. It's free on Pluto. There's no reason for you not to watch it. Yes. It's free on YouTube. Everybody has YouTube. You don't even need Pluto. Wait, does it have commercials on YouTube? It does. It's free with ads. Yeah. Oh, okay. I watched it on Pluto and it had ads, so it added a half an hour to the movie (laughs) front time. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's not on Pluto when this episode releases the podcast. We'll see. Yeah, I, I I started up and I'm like, wow, two hours. I don't remember this being two hours. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's on Pluto. So they put like all these ad breaks in and they count that in the runtime. Because when I watched Titanic on there, it was six hours long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I remember I hit up on the remote and I'm like, Jesus Christ, James Cameron, what are we doing here? Six hours. Oh, it's because of the commercials. I do like that feature, though, when it actually takes the commercials into account for the runtime. I like that. <laughs> Makes it easier to predict schedules. But yes, time covers the old lane. Uh, listeners, go check it out. But if you have already seen it, or you haven't, but you're okay with spoilers, then you can stay right here. But break down the 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is starting right now. 
where we open on missile, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, hurriedly packing up some luggage and her home, and there seems to be some chaos outside, we hear a boom, she leaves behind his engagement ring as she rushes out of place, takes a bottle of Glen Ragulin, a fictional single malt scotch with her. It'll come back later. I, I remember when I saw that, I was like, oh, right. I forgot about that whole part. Chekhov's gun. <laughs> They're not going to show you something they don't, you don't use. Yes. And then she goes on a road trip out of New Orleans, Louisiana. And along the way, she gets a call from Ben, her fiancé, who is played by Bradley Cooper, of all people. Because apparently, J.J. <laughs> Abrams' producer had reached out to the former Alias star. And just asked him, like, hey, you want to do this? And that's what Cooper did. He recorded the audio file, sent it over. And apparently, he and Abrams didn't communicate for this gig outside of text messages. So it was just really quick, efficient. Well, if he wins the Oscar this year, they'll have to rechange all the box art to be, like, <laughs> also featuring Academy Award winner Bradley Cooper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I have not seen Vice Joe yet, by the way. And I'm kind of dreading watching it. But I'll watch it. I ain't watching that. It looks boring. Yeah, I don't know. I've heard things about it, and I'm also not wild about uh, Bradley Cooper using the big nose prosthetic that is yeah. anti-Semitic and unnecessary. Why? That was a weird decision. No one on set was like, wow, this is a really bad idea. <laughs> like, nobody thought that? Okay. Uh, but yes, Bradley Cooper, he gets his voice cameo here at Ben, who's asking Michelle to come back, and they just had an argument. The way it's worded, it sounds like the sort of thing where it's like, oh, did she, like, is this a fixable thing? And she's just running away from it because that's kind of like her arc is like, oh, her arc is like running away from things that are hard for her. Or is it a deeper rift? Like, has this been building up for a while in their relationship? This fracture. It's a small, it's a small element of the story. But, uh, I took it as she's just running away from something that, that was uh, running away from confrontation. You know, something that it was definitely fixable, but she just panicked and took off with her big bottle of whiskey. I was uh, thinking that, yeah. I, I think that's her character, which makes the story work in a way. Yes, we love a good story arc. And then we also hear over the radio that there's been blackouts in multiple major cities. And then she suddenly gets into a car crash, which is when we cut to the title card, 10 Cloverfield Lane. And we're not sure why at this moment what happened to the car crash. It's not made clear to us. He was. I, I just have to interject. That is my favorite well-worn trope of these type of movies is the characters going about their everyday life while the radio or the TV in the background or other stuff is telling you stuff's going down. <laughs> and in the, the main characters are completely ignoring it because they're absorbed in their lives. Like that is one of my favorite post-apocalyptic movie tropes. And I, and it, it's it's such a trope. It happens in almost every yeah, one of these movies. And I, I eat it up every single time. I love it. You know, I hadn't really focused on that being a trope before. But now that you bring it up, Zoe, I'm like, yeah, I know. I, I tend to click with it, looking back on the trope. I vibe with it. Something I really admire about this whole opening is how Michelle is quiet. Like, she's silent for a good stretch of the beginning of the movie. And so that really allows the movie to just hinge primarily on vision boards. Even how in the opening, like right in the first minute or two, when it's all set up on the visuals, like, oh, she gets the, she gets the scotch. And then the camera focuses on the engagement ring. Or even when she picks up her, her sketchbook. 
with, uh, with, the clo- with her clothing design sketches in it. And I myself later, oh, she, she dreams of, of, of textile a- aspirations, which also comes in handy in the plot. It's plot relevant, but also part of her character. And so it's just like, the, the beginning is just very so tautly executed. And so is the rest of, of the movie, too. Yeah, they, they do a really good job of setting up all of the stuff that comes later on. It's like placed very well at the very beginning. And if you're not paying attention, if you're like, you know, just sitting down with your popcorn and you're like, where's the monsters? You know, if you're that guy, then you will probably miss some of that that subtlety. Uh, but it, they definitely set it up really well. And then Michelle, we cut to her regaining consciousness inside this cell. We have an with his IV hooked up to her arm, her, her leg chained down in this cast-esque thingamabob. Right away, as she wakes up, she is just scheming a way to get out of this situation. She gets the IV stand and tries to use it to pull over the, her, her bag and her phone from across the room over to herself. And it's like, damn, you're, you're just moving so fast here. There's no signal, though. The phone has some battery use, but no signal left, wherever she is. And then we have this man coming in, this mysterious man, played by John Goodman, who brings her food, and she asks him to let her go, but he says he's trying to keep her alive, and then he gives her crutches. So when she has the crutches now, and after he leaves, she is just showing off her resourcefulness some more, as she, like, crafts one of her new crutches into this pointed weapon, like she takes a cap off the bottom and shaves off the bottom of the crutch so it has like a little pointed end. Which, it doesn't, it doesn't work unfortunately when she tries to attack Howard. It doesn't totally work, but still, she's trying here. And she also, she used to vent. She also like lit up, lit up this towel, but with a match and sucked up into the vent, set off the fire alarm near Howard over. But, oh no, he comes with this event to inject her into unconsciousness. Yeah, they they really do a good job of showing how um, how smart she is and how capable she is and how, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the, the type of balls that she has. Like, she's not going to go down without a fight. And they they spend so much time showing her make that the end of the crutch with a point. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to mess this dude up. This is going to be amazing. I can't wait to see. Oh, oh, nothing happened. <laughs> he just took it right out of her head. I'm like, oh, well, that was that was something. Oh no, yep. Howard, he was prepared, unfortunately, he wasn't prepared. Yep. So then she wakes up to this guy just scolding her, hey, don't pull that crap again. And he claims he saved her life, tells her about how there's been an attack, we're not sure if it's chemical or nuclear, and they're currently underneath his farmhouse, and he had found Michelle in her car crash, and then brought her here. And he can't let her leave yet because of the fallout, which could take a year or two to dissipate. He mentions the Martians potentially getting here, which gives you a hint of this conspiracy theory-leading character. So I, I, I guess it, it is a good thing that, that his paranoia led him to build this doomsday bunker at the, at the end of the day. Of course, yeah. He's one of the few people that uh, is... And that's the beauty of the movies, that you don't know whether he's crazy or if he's really smart you know if he's actually done the right thing regarding uh the invasion yeah but uh yeah I, his bunker is amazing he had plenty of food and orange soda and all of that stuff <laughs> so many puzzles he had dvds and home video <laughs> so many so many supplies everywhere and and look i will say i will say watching this movie did make me think a lot about how if i had the money if i had the ability 
I would build a doomsday bunker for myself. I would. <laughs> to hide in when uh, everything is going to shit. Especially because I feel like, I don't know, like, it's funny watching this movie right now because I just feel, feel like, like the world is just going to crap at this moment as I'm watching Israel commit genocide against Palestine. I'm watching the U.S. and the U.K. bomb Yemen because I care more about the trade route to Israel than about protecting human beings in Gaza. I'm just watching all of this crap happen, all of this madness and apathy. And I'm just like, if humanity does reach its, its doom, its apocalypse, like if things are just like, no more, there's nothing else to live for in this current society, I would just like a, a bunker, you know, to <laughs> take shelter in, get, get my supplies, some electronics, some, some books, definitely books. Yeah, I kind of wondered how this movie would play post-pandemic. Like, would it be super appealing to have a, to think of yourself as a, a person that would build a Ooh. shelter just to get away from the craziness that's happening outside in the world? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe Howard wasn't that crazy to begin with. Yeah, pandemic. Yes, yes, that would be a, a very good period to use it. Uh, and when Michelle asked to contact her family. He says, everyone outside of here is dead. And when she says, don't you have a family? The convoy gets cut off by some chattering noises outside. And he goes outside for a bit, seems to get angry, and then comes back to Michelle and says, I'm going to tell you what I told him. You need to eat, you need to sleep, and you need to start showing a bit of appreciation. <laughs> so we learn here, okay, so there's a hint that, that there's another individual in this shelter and also, this is when he says his name is Howard, before he leaves, so now we know his name is Howard. But in this scene, specifically when he says, you need, you need to start showing a bit of appreciation, it's one of the numerous beats in this movie where he really displays his male entitlement. And you can just feel the toxic masculinity just radiating off of him as he's looming over Michelle. And just this whole condescending attitude, it's like the same kind of attitude you find radiating off of men, particularly nice guys, where it's like, oh, they, they try to do something for a woman, and so they expect that woman to give them favors back. And now Howard is like, oh, I saved you, so you, you need to be grateful to me. Yeah, I, def I definitely feel like he was expecting her to be a little bit more grateful, even though he didn't do a great job of really explaining what was happening outside. Like, she'd she's still in the in the thoughts of you know this guy kidnapped me <laughs> she has no idea like what's really happening outside in the world yeah. so uh yeah he he, he definitely kind of amped it up and that was the to me that was like the turning point where it's like oh he's really scary like he he might seem like a nice guy but he's really scary right starting right now yeah i think it's the combination of that plus the fact that he can't really give her a solid explanation of what's happening so it's like, I think it was a nuclear attack, but it could have been chemical or it could have been something else. Or I'm not really sure what's happening outside. So you're like, this guy's nuts and he's an asshole. So like, this is bad mojo. Yeah. He says, oh, it's an attack. But for all Michelle knows, he did really kidnap. He did really kidnap her, abduct her. And like, yeah. and especially because like, strip away the clover field trappings away from this. This is a very plausible story, uh, uh, something that could easily happen in real life. Oh, a woman just wakes up, oh, she's in this bunker, a man tells her he saved her, apparently, but did he really? Yeah, so it's, it's very terrifying in that fashion. And after she rests for a bit, Michelle, she leaves her room using her, her, the other crutch she has left and runs into Emmett, 
So now we have Emmett introduced here, played by John Gallagher Jr., who is sleeping between the food shelves and the corridor, and he says the air outside is contaminated. And so now it's like, it's kind of it's interesting to bring him, him in here now, because now it's like, okay, we don't have just Howard and the, and the situation anymore. We have Emmett here, and I like how Gallagher played Emmett here, just brings this goofy charisma and comedic relief to the character and makes the situation just a little more bearable. I feel much more relaxed when it's just him and Michelle together. Yeah, because the tension is like already like super thick because you don't really know like his, what Howard's story is and you are, are automatically on Michelle's side. So when you have this third character who's just like, hey, you know, uh, you know uh, just kind of relax and kind of adding a little bit of humor, it puts, at least it put me in a more comforting uh, situation. Cause it's like, okay, Howard can't be that bad if this nice dude is here uh, being a part of this. So I, I really like that character. Yeah. And it, it's, it at least helps the movie not like Mark said, be so terrifying because at this point we're still not a hundred percent sure if he just kidnapped her or not, and he's feeding her lies about what's going on outside because he's going to do something awful to her. So to have this other guy down there, that's like, Oh yeah, it's, it's okay. Like this is actually happening outside. And he didn't, he seemed genuine about it as opposed to um, John Goodman seeming like a little, like he's not, he didn't either didn't know, or he's not telling her the whole truth. Um, You get a vibe from him that he's, that he's bought in. He, this is what he believes. So, uh, it was it was nice to at least have a valve on the tension a little bit. Yes, and and then Howard also comes in to reveal that Emma's arm is in a cast after he knocked over a shelf with a whole week's worth of food, which you can tell Howard was not happy about that. Which I guess understandable also because food is valuable. So, mm-hmm. you know, and this is when Howard shows them around the, the bunker, the living room. We've got the aquaponics system, the DVD and VHS cassettes. Duke box, 40 functional kitchen, this table, because a family heirloom. Yeah, got to use coasters on the table. <laughs> and I'm wondering, what would you have in your own doomsday bunker jukeboxes? Ooh, let's see. In my jukebox, uh, let's see. It'd, it'd probably be like uh, 50% K-pop and uh, I don't know, 50, uh, 45% like 90s hip-hop and then like 5% uh, movie scores. <laughs> movies play. Oh man. Uh I mean it would probably be as schizophrenic as my Spotify is at this point. Um you know, mostly pop punk and metal and we'll throw some like riffraff and little Debbie in there too. Um I'd rather be outside. Mark's like, uh, can I leave now? <laughs> we'll just be blasting riffraff. The aliens don't even want to come near it. Um Oh, yes. Watch them off. Watch them off. Yeah, that's right. But uh, and then maybe some like Al Green or something in case, you know, we get some ladies down there. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. But me, (laughs) for me, I would probably have some pop, some alternative, some film, TV, video game scores. I would definitely have a few selections like like Coldplay. I'd have Coldplay on there. The Killers, Olivia Rodrigo, Eddie Goulding, Ingrid Michaelson. The King by Sarah Kinsley, uh, Just How by Rina Sawayama, uh, Hans Zimmer's Inception score, his Interstellar score, definitely, definitely. Ooh. Is that so when you got to get yourself hyped up to fight the aliens, you'll like be pumping in, it'll be like, Wah. Yes, pump that, pump that up. 
Born a public, I'd have one Republic. The Drive soundtrack, I love that as well. Maybe some murder on the dance floor by Sophie Ellis Dexter. Yes. I'd have a good variety. There you go. And Howard lets Michelle reluctantly use his private space with permission because he's got like this other private space with a bathroom in it. And Michelle has to be in there and just it's clearly uncomfortable because the only thing blocking the bathrooms or the bathroom, quote unquote, is the shower curtain with the ducky in a rain jacket and carrying an umbrella to provide privacy. Uh, the curtain will come in later, of course. Afterward, Michelle finds some magazines that have been owned by someone named Megan, but she's gone now, according to Howard. He's very hush-hush about that. There's nobody out there, nothing is coming through, even the radio, he says. They're all dead. Any sounds from outside aren't coming from living people who can help. So again, he's very, he, he's made it clear at multiple points. There's nobody else out there who can assist us. We are alone. We need to protect ourselves. Help is not coming. Um, and again, at this point in the movie, we're still not 100% bought in yeah. to what's happening. So to me, I, I think it does a great job of kind of making you be like, is he crazy? Is he not crazy? So, uh, you know, it, it was definitely a good vibe. Definitely. So Howard is really just asserting his authority here. And he even goes so far as to show Michelle, Frank and Mildred. And they are a couple take corpses that Michelle can see outside. They've been exposed to the radiation, and she's able to see them because he brings her up the stairway that leads to an, an airlock, essentially. And she's able to go into the airlock and just look out the window and see the, the pigs that have been ex- exposed, apparently, to radiation or chemical, whatever, whatever happens outside. But they just look tore up, though. That's the thing. Like, they don't... I... So still, you could make a case that you're not 100% sure he's telling the truth. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's just, again, you know, the details, are they really fitting all together? What really gets Michelle suspicious, though, is when she sees this pickup truck outside, and it makes her flash back to a car crash, and it makes her think, oh, wait, I saw that truck on the road, it ran me off. And it's like, okay, wait, what, what? What's really happening here? Yeah, it's got it's got paint on the side from her car. <laughs> yep, and, and that and doesn't help that Howard just like when he chooses to say that he always keeps the outer door locked. No one goes in or out. He makes it very clear, hey, you cannot leave. And no one can come in either. But also you cannot leave. And then we cut to Michelle and Emmett who are chatting. And we learned, just in a brief moment, we learned Emmett has done all the quizzes in the gold magazines that Howard <laughs> has lying around. And he even offers to do a French braid for Michelle since he read an article on that. And I appreciate about them, about, I appreciate that about him. Like, he's not, like, he's not, he's not being a man who's like, oh, girly stuff, you. He's just like, hey, you know, I read the magazines, I can do a French braid for you. You know, I, I really wanted to see that scene of them just sitting on a couch and him fringe braiding her hair, just just for the hell of it. I know, that, that'd be fun, you know, bring some amusement to the movie. And it is, it's a brief moment, but it does, I think it's one of the more important moments, one, one of the most important moments in regards to how this movie presents its gender dynamics. And I'm going to read a quote that I got from the morbidly disgusting article, I think we're alone now. An analysis of the important themes of femininity, 
Masculinity and the Female Experience, explored in 10 Cloverfield Lane by Jamie Arby. And in this quote, the author says, As 10 Cloverfield Lane progresses, we get a better glimpse of Emmett's character and how he proves himself to be an ally to Michelle and her only true friend in the bunker. Emmett has all the trappings of a traditionally masculine man. He's flannel clad, baseball cap wearing, and has a beard that would make most men jealous. He's in a traditionally masculine trade, carpentry and contracting. His masculinity cannot be put on trial because he is a masculine character, but he is a good example of non-toxic masculinity, and his non-toxic masculinity is put into sharp contrast with Howard's overbearing and looming toxic masculinity. Which I feel like that really does sum up his character quite well. Again, that's why I said before, it's just so much more calm, more soothing when it's just him with Michelle. Oh man, I you know what I I didn't even really think of that at all. But as you're saying that, I'm like that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Oh man, you're gonna make me change my score in this movie. And also notable that the movie is able to be just nuanced when it was written by three men and directed by a man. And I'm like, really, man, you didn't want to throw in maybe an unnecessary rape scene hmm, to get your point across. You didn't want to do any other gross stuff like that. <laughs> It's actually pretty nuanced. It's pretty damn nuanced. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God we didn't get that in here. Ugh. It reminds me of one of my favorite bad movies of all time, Showgirls. Have you guys ever seen Showgirls? I've seen parts of that movie, but not the whole thing. Mark, I know you've seen Showgirls. Uh, I <laughs> Not only did I see Showgirls, I was working at the movie theaters when it came out. I was the guy that had to stop the 17-year-old kids from getting in because it was not rated R. It was Yeah, so you were the that. guy carting us uh, when yeah. we left to go to the bathroom and come back in the theater. That's, that's right. That's right. So You, you got it anyway, though. So the, the, the reason I bring it up is because it's a hilariously bad movie. And then just randomly, like, 75% of the way in, there's just a absolutely awful to watch brutal rape scene in it and and i was like 18 at the time and i was uncomfortable i'm like what is what is this and it's honestly stopped me from rewatching it a few times or i just chapter skipped that on the dvd it I, just out of nowhere like what was that <laughs> yeah do you remember this mark understandable i'll i'll be honest i blinked a lot of that movie from my memory <laughs> chill all right chill understandable I love that movie. Other than the other than the horrible, hard to watch rape scene, uh, that movie is amazing. But anyway, back to Ten Cloverfield Lane. I wonder if he. I wonder if he had that on DVD in the in the bunker. <laughs> so good, so good. Oh my goodness! I mean, he was playing on being there alone, so I mean, he must have had like something, you know, something, something. But yes, lots of love for Emmett's character. Yes, yes, and and he revealed Howard was in the Navy and work on satellites. Emmett was the one who helped construct this bunker for years, and he'd heard all of Howard's conspiracy theories, and his arm, he had, he had, he had injured his arm, you know, while fighting his, his way in. And Michelle thinks Howard is lying about all this, using him running to Ralph's road as evidence. And the thing is, though, how Emmett himself witnessed the attack. So it's like, hmm, okay, how much of this is true if he's here to provide the source? Yeah. Right. But then we also have to assume we're taking everything he says at face value true. as well. True. So, yeah. True. And his arm, that, that, that is how it happened, right? His arm, like he injured it while fighting his way in? Or was it like, what, was it the shelf falling on him? Was it when he knocked over the shelf before? 
Yep. I thought it was him fighting his way in is how he hurt his arm. Because I felt I oh. feel like his arm was already in the cast when whatever fell okay. fell. Like when we when we actually do see him, he's already like his arm is already in a cast. So I assume that it happened him trying to fight his way in there. Because I because for some reason I thought that he had that him knocking over the shelf. Because remember how it is like, oh, he knocked his food shelf over, wasted the whole week's worth of food. I thought that was when he injured his arm. But then I may, I think I'm getting mixed up here though. I think it might have been when he was like fighting his way in. Well, I think it's it's kind of when you hear the story that he had to fight his way in, it kind of gives you more insight to Howard too, because like what what was Howard's shtick? Like he built this thing, everybody said he was he was kind of crazy or weird, and then he didn't want to let anybody else in. So he was just gonna survive whatever happened and then walk out afterwards and be like, see, I was right. F you guys, everyone else is dead. Look how, look how smart I was. Like, like that was, that was his big thing. Like, it seemed like that was what he wanted out of all of this was to be able to walk out after it was done and be like, I told you so. I mean, he is very petty like that. Very petulant. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that in my bones. I feel the pettiness, but man, I mean, it, it would have to be pretty boring down there too. And Michelle uh, had heard a cloud right above them earlier so she's like it has to be life right there has to be but the air is contaminated again allegedly and then howard announces supper time so the three of them sit down for a good old dinner around that family heirloom table eating spaghetti whipped up by howard and he says he's an okay cook but megan was a great cook though again mentioning megan again and i miss he appreciates having this meal and a sauce in comparison to dying from a nuclear attack and he also mentions always wanting a tattoo, but people pushed him to avoid that because it would cut him off from getting a, a solid job. And I don't know, I, I love tattoos. Not for me, like, I wouldn't get a tattoo personally, but I like seeing tattoos in other people's. I'm not anti. Sure. I'm not anti tattoo. I just I have none. I have none. Yeah, like like me. For for a while, it was because my wife said you're not a tattoo person. But then a couple of years ago, she was like, well, she got a tattoo, a, a new one, be to uh, commemorate our cat that had passed away. And um, she's like, oh, you can get one, too, when we go. And I'm like, oh. And then at that point, I had already, like, mentally prepared myself to never have one. So I didn't even know what to get. And then I just didn't get one. Oh, no. Uh. Mark has huge tats all over him under on his chest. Like, right across his yeah, stomach, it says no weeks off in old English. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got a back tattoo that's uh, just um, a celebration of the rise of Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> very good. Very good. No, I don't. I don't have any tattoos. I I will get one at some point. I just don't have any right now. Yeah, tattoos. Yeah, maybe someday for me. Someday we'll see. And when Emmett asks Howard if there's anything he regrets missing out on, Howard says no, there isn't. Everything he wanted to do, he did. He's a prepared individual. And Emmett jokes about playing Monopoly and how long he'll be stuck down here. Howard gets pissed off and it's like, don't joke about that. You know, we don't know how long we'll be down here for. And the way that she acts here, I props to John Goodman for, for his acting here, just how quietly he's able to just give off this intense, intensely annoyed mood. Not even just annoyed, like angry, honestly. Like this, like this fury seeping underneath his, uh, the surface. And, the way, and he clenches his fists. It's just so chilling to watch. Like, okay, Howard, can you please like, not get pissed off at every little thing that Emmett says? But, again, like, like the article that I read before said, that's a contrast between them. And that's why Howard gets pissed off, though, is because he sees Emmett as a threat. Because Howard is the one who wants to, he wants to be setting down your sweaty here. He's the man of the house. And Emmett is right. a threat to that. 
particularly in regards to Michelle, because Howard, as we'll see later, Howard sees his Michelle as kind of like a replacement for his, like a stand-in for Megan, who will find learn who will learn it was his daughter. Yeah, John Goodman does a really good job of just turning the 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 intensity up during that scene. Like you, you know, you get a little scared of him at the beginning, and then at this point, you really kind of like kind of sit back a little bit and be like, "What is this guy capable of? Like, what is?" what could he possibly do down here um, to these people? Cause Emmett is a nice dude from what we can tell and him being so threatened by him. It really makes you kind of fear for Emmett, even though you just met yeah, him. Yeah. Hello listeners. This is Arthur, the host of Two Sense Critics. I'm here to tell you about Zencaster, the very service that helps me record my show. Out of all the potential options out there, I picked Zencaster because it's a brief to use and the basic things that I need to record are available for free, which is handy for someone like me, someone who isn't brimming with money that I can spend on extra podcast features. It really is incredibly easy to record a podcast with Zencaster. You can just log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. Record studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. And Zencaster's multi-layered backups will ensure that you always have your recordings in the highest quality even if the connection is unstable. And if you've thought about podcasting before and realize that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code 2CCDiscount. That is 2 to number 2. And you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So Michelle sees the keys hooked to Howard's belt, and that's when she seems to cook up a plan. So then she starts casually chatting with Emmett about board games like Sorry and Operation. Which, by the way, I never played Sorry before. I feel like that's a and just middle details on my life. We weren't allowed to have it in our house when I was a kid. My dad refused oh. to allow us to have it. He said it would cause way too many fights, and we were not having it in our house. Oh no! I, I don't know. I never. I've never played that game. Oh, oh well. Okay, then we share that, Joey. We, we share that. But <laughs> Operation, though, I have played Operation many times. Lots of love for that game. Also, Django. Django is a great uh, board game too, and Mousetrap. So Emmett and Michelle are playing and uh, playing around, just chatting. And then she asks him to pass the salt, then the pepper, and she meaningfully touches his hand. And this is when Howard gets really pissed off and like slams his fist on the table. He explodes in Michelle. This is when he's like has her up against the wall and just looming over her. And even in this scene, this is when he's like, "Is that how you thank me for saving your life?" And again, like he wants her to be thankful to him. What the hell, dude? Like, she, doesn't, she doesn't know. She doesn't fully know if you are truly a, a good guy here, an ally to her. Well, he's clearly operating under his own kind of uh, ideals of what what he's doing, what the world is like, and him being nice to these people. Absolutely. You know, he he's kind of operating on his own ideals. So yeah, he's definitely going to think that he deserves a little bit of respect and a little bit of. Uh, um, appreciation for what he's doing because his brain is not all there. No, 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 no. 
and Michelle says she'll behave, and then she sits down with the keys in her hand. She TikToked them successfully. The sound design in this scene, I appreciate it. So just a drowning noise. It amps up the tension. Then we hear a run from outside, and that's when Michelle makes a run for it. She like bashes Howard over the head with his bottle, rushes up the stairs, unlocks multiple locks. I think three locks for the airlock. Yeah. Oh my god. And just like it enables and, and she sees a car outside, she gets into the airlock, and then Howard is like locked out, out of the airlock, and he's yelling at her to stop, and Michelle is gonna, trying to leave, but then this woman with radiation burns just suddenly comes up against the front door. All over, all over her face, she burns, and she's begging Michelle to let her in. But then like turns angrier and angrier as she isn't letting her in, and, and Michelle is staying in the airlock. And eventually this woman just smacks her own head against the little window of the door repeatedly. To, and, and ends up killing herself, and oh my god, that that is like it's like it's one of the scenes of movie. I feel like this movie has more of a slow burn at this point, but that is like oh that's the that's where the terror, the tension spikes up significantly. I love that entire scene of her grabbing the keys, like because you know that you know that's her plan, you know she's gonna grab the keys, and as you see him like just kind of play with the bottle you know that he's going to go for his keys to open up to get the bottle opener to open up the the top of the orange soda so as he's playing with it and he's having a conversation i'm like well how is she gonna how is she going to pull this off and the way that she pulls it off is she smashes him in the head with a bottle which is amazing i love that entire sequence uh and then everything after that is great but that holds still in the keys oh my god i love that whole yeah and just and and wait i see see go to Howard into exploding at her physically and just like so that way she can get close enough to grab the keys. That's why she was chatting with, with Emmett. So again, like she's she's thinking, she's smart, clever girl, as as an ever faded hunter in Jurassic Park put it. <laughs> she totally played him and his uh his masculinity and it worked like a charm. And then we cut to Michelle back in her cell. Howard goes in there, confesses, finally, that he is the one who crashed into her car, and he was driving frenetically in his rush to return to his bunker, and he calls Michelle's crash, he apologizes, then lets her borrow Megan's clothes. Creepy little detail when you fully realize what's going on. But So at this point, what are you thinking now? That now that he has revealed this important piece of info. I, I still, at this point, you still, I mean, we know because we've seen the movie before, but at, at this point, you're still not 100% bought in on him. And and I almost felt that him revealing that to her was manipulative uh, also. Like, yeah, it, it yeah, felt I manipulative. Agree. I agree. If I'm not pronouncing that right, I apologize. But it felt that way when he was doing it. Like, it was a way to placate her to stop her from trying to escape. Uh, it just weird man it was just a weird vibe that whole time was that whole part was like very very creepy vibe like you're still getting that creepy vibe off him like like you gotta if you're living in that bunker you gotta be on eggshells like the whole time because he's gonna freak out and and now it's even worse because she tried she got to the door and saw some crazy lady at the door who kind of confirmed some of the things he was saying so now you're trapped in there with this guy who's nuts. So again, they're doing a great job of ramping it up uh, for you, but it, it, it's a, it's a very, very creepy vibe for me. Absolutely. And then we cut to Howard and Michelle in the living room where he says the woman outside is Leslie, a neighbor. 
and he reveals other people know about his bunker too, so maybe other people will come along try to get in. Then he assigns her to stitch out the cut on his on his forehead, and it's it's like, Lady Howard, you wanted to do this, okay? And and you know, I feel like I feel like if I guess I would trust her, I suppose, because she like she again, she's smart, like she's responsible. I feel like I can trust her to to do something like that, and and he and he shows off a, a, this neat little trick to turn his vodka on the rocks, which is like with his freezing spray. He he sprays the cup with his freezing spray. And recording back with Navy Days, where he and his buddies would prank the CO. Whenever the CO over, overworked them, they would freeze and snap the knob off the bathroom door while she was still inside. Which is like, oh, that is ruthless. <laughs> By the way, Howard Vodka, he, he distilled it himself. But he also says, hey, it's not good. It's not meant to be good vodka, though. <laughs> right, it's vodka. It's not good vodka, but it's something. Yeah. I don't drink, so is there anything? Is there such a thing as bad vodka? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't drink either, but I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm Mark, assuming. Mark confirms it. So. Yes. And even they use that distilled vodka to uh, sterilize the hook as, as much as they can, anyways. And then Howard shows Michelle the belonging of hers that he managed to bring in. So Scott didn't make it in, sadly, but it'll come back later. And. Part of her stuff is the sketchbook with the clothing design sketches of hers. And just make Howard mention how uh, Megan aspired to be an artist. And we, we learn now she was his daughter. She adored reading and Paris. But apparently her mom turned her against Howard, took her off to Chicago. And when we learned this, I'm just like, hmm, it wasn't really that simple, Howard. I feel like there's more stuff going on there. Especially with the way you're acting now. Like, Hmm, maybe, there's maybe a reason why your, why your wife and your daughter uh, ran off to Chicago. Yeah, and, and I, I agree. I, I think that was kind of the first time I actually believed something he said uh, because he was so obsessed with building this this bunker that, that his wife and daughter were just like, we're out of here, you're a weirdo, and, and bounced. And then back in Michelle's room, we get this wonderful talk between her and Emmett, who's like, just like sitting out in the hallway. She says that even if she let in Leslie, she still would have died anyways. And then we learn about Emmett and Michelle, kind of like more of their, their histories. For Emmett, we learned that she had a scholarship because he was a fast runner, and so he got a scholarship for that. But then the night before he was supposed to leave, he sabotaged himself out of fear and anxiety, and he got wasted, missed the bus the next morning, didn't get any more bus passes, so he didn't use that scholarship. And for Michelle, she tells the story about being at a hardware store where there was this little girl and her dad, and she ended up witnessing her dad being abusive to his daughter because she, like, she wasn't moving fast enough for him. So she would like just she would yank she would uh, he he would yank her along, and he even hit her when she fell. And Michelle wanted to call for help, but she got so scared off, but but she got so 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 scared, so terrified that she ran off. Ugh. Did you feel that was a true story that she was telling? I thought it was. Yes, yes. Why did you, okay. did you not Mark, think? Mark, did you? Did you? Because I, I felt almost like she was using that to manipulate him into helping her. <laughs> no, Interesting. I, I, no. I totally thought that was a true story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, just a few minutes earlier, she was willing to flirt with him and touch his hand to try to trick him into helping her. So, I mean, I maybe she's not a hundred percent as innocent as she's portrayed. I see. I I feel like in this particular vulnerable conversation, I feel like it was a tone. It's really the tone of the movie that sells it for me. 
where it, it feels like the, like the tone is meant to be authentically, you know, just deep, heartbreaking here. And it's meant to be a character moment that, that shows us more of Michelle's character and how she'll come around. Like, she'll feel evolve, like. And it's not like the movie really pays off this moment in a way that would make us think, would make me think at least, oh, she was making that story up. Mm-hmm. And Emmett finishes off this whole conversation by saying, hey, you're alive, and I mean something. It's gotta. Also, this whole chat also displays Michelle's unresolved feelings toward her, toward her dad, definitely, because uh, that's brought up very, very briefly, because Michelle says she knew how that girl felt, and her brother Colin was always there to defend her against her dad, and she wanted to do the same thing for this girl. So there's definitely some, uh, some dad trauma here, some, uh, some messy dad crap. <gasps> Clearly Michelle came from a dysfunctional family, and I feel like that is all echoed through her dynamic with Howard, just imposing paternal figure, imposing both in terms of his physicality and also his heir, just his severe personality. And it's not, I guess, not, it's a very small element, something that you could uh, overlook, but if it's there, you know, it, it, you notice it, and it adds, mm-hmm. it, it adds even more to the whole atmosphere and to Michelle's character. Damn it, Arthur, you're, you're making me change my score, man. <laughs> Yes, yes. Yeah, we, we don't even really learn anything else about her dad. It's just like, again, very tiny, very tiny here. Yep. But, just, you know, we know it's there. So, I'm just all feeling. And then we get a montage with the threesome living out their lives in his bunker, playing with a jigsaw puzzle, cooking up food, watching a movie called Cannibal Airlines. It's fictional, <laughs> by the way. Not real, but it could be real. I wouldn't be surprised if it was real. All as I think we're alone now by Tommy James and Deshaun Dowd plays, and Emmett is missing pieces for his cat jigsaw, while Michelle is drawing up a punky look and a rifle for a model, and just and just a girl's one of one of the girls' magazines, and then there's a rumble followed by the whirring of perhaps helicopters, maybe, and Howard is like it's probably not American military. Maybe a foreign government, some enemy force, is doing ground sweeps now to take out remaining signs of life. Then the air filtration system gets blocked, so they have to fix that. Howard assigns Michelle to crawl into the duct and restart the system. A bit tense because he wonders that neither him nor Emmett will be able to get in there and help her to get stuck. And even and the way he says to her, don't get stuck. So ominous. Yeah, because she gets stuck, everybody's screwed. Right, everyone is dead if she's stuck. So. Because like she's <laughs> not just them. She's smart enough to get in there. That's why. That's why he's assigned her. Then, so she, she does that. She climbs into the into the vent, into the duct, and fixes the and restarts the filtration system. Then she finds this hatch up above, and sees through the window. The sky is all blue. She sees the padlock keeping the hatch closed, and she climbs up the ladder. Then she sees scratches carved into the inside of the glass. So she pulled aside the window cover, finds out that help has been scratched into the inside of the glass. It's just dried blood trailing away from it. And then when she gets back down to the bottom of the ladder, she finds these bloody earrings that she takes to Emmett. And she's theorizing, wait, did Howard do something bad to Megan? And these earrings, like she recognizes the earrings from this photo of Megan. But wait, that's not Megan, according to Emmett. That's Brittany, who went to school with Emmett's little sister. She went missing two years ago. Oh, dear. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Ooh. And that's when my stomach just dropped <laughs> in this movie. I'm like, 
why is he in a bunker with this girl two years ago before any aliens attacked? Oh no, Howard. On top of that, then they find another photo. This other photo drops out of the book in Michelle's hand. A photo of Howard and Brittany. Brittany, by the way, is wearing the Paris The Tame t-shirt that Michelle is now wearing. The shirt that was supposed to be Megan's. Yes. Oh my god. And now Michelle and Emmett are like, how do we handle this? And then Howard comes in. And he's not, <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. He just turns on the jukebox and plays Tell Him by the Exciters. <laughs> this was, you know, this is obviously the turning point in the movie. And it, it marks right. It, it hits you like a, a brick wall. Like everything you suspected is now like confirmed. Like this is not a good situation. You got to get out of here. Yes. Yes. By the way, Tell Him. By the Exciters, when I hear that song, I always think of Monsters vs. Aliens because it's part of the soundtrack for that movie. And so that was the first time I ever heard that. So if, if I've it, never seen that movie, Mark Ellis. Oh. Uh, I have seen it, but it was so long ago, I don't remember it at all. I remember, is okay. is, is Seth Rogen a monster <laughs> in that yes, movie? Yes, he's, he's Bob. He's the blue yes. Bob. Yes, I do remember that. I, do yeah. remember, I remember him, his character. Okay, yeah. Monsters vs. Aliens, I do, I'll recommend it because it is, a, I feel like it's, it's an underrated DreamWorks movie. And then Michelle is now starting to scheme a way to put this hazmat suit together. A, a homemade hazmat suit, this gas mask, because her and Emmett are crafting it together. They're getting the materials, and mainly it's her building it with the curtain, because they take the shower curtain. They take uh, duct tape, scissors, utility knife. And, and I like how to get the curtain because the way to do that is when Emmett's like, oh, hey, he pokes his little idea into Howard's head. Like, oh, maybe Michelle brought back contaminants with her after fixing the filtration unit, got them all over the shower and sink. So this pushes Howard to like throw out the shower curtain, which Michelle and Emmett then get from the garbage chute. So scheming, so plotting away. Yeah, I like that. I like how she brought back the, uh, the pole that she had before in the beginning of the movie. To when she was trying to grab her phone, the little the pole with the hook on it, yes, yes. somehow it makes a reappearance. I, the IV stand, yes, yes. The stand, yeah. And, and also, while Emmett was doing uh, was doing that, poking his, his idea into Howard's head, Howard was watching Pretty in Pink, which was allegedly one of one of Megan's favorite movies. Yes, a lot of things in the in this bunker very much revolve around his daughter. You can tell he's very hung up on her. Yes. And this is where I want to read another quote from the article because this movie makes use of Michelle's textile skills. And the article says, in addition to traditionally feminine art being depicted in a useful and ultimately life-saving way, Michelle's femininity as a whole is never shown to be a drawback or a weak point in a character's makeup. Many writers and filmmakers fall prey to the idea that masculinity is equal to strength and femininity is equal to weakness, coding traits in a long enforced and demeaning gender binary that they use to determine the metal of a character, traditionally feminine coded, despite whether that character identifies as male, female, or gender nonconforming. Characters have often been depicted as weaker and more delicate than their more masculine counterparts. Michelle's strength and femininity are allowed to coexist and not come into conflict with one another because the filmmakers of 10 Cloverfield Lane realize that strength does not correlate to one particular side of an outdated gender binary. Yeah, which I, I fully agree with. And in general, it's really, it's like there are actually whole articles on how this movie deals with its feminist themes. 
a lot of them, which I'm very happy to see. Very happy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And there, that, that the writer of that is absolutely correct. That those two ideas of her being feminine and her being strong, they don't conflict each other at all. They definitely work hand in hand in the yeah. situations that she's in. Yeah, yeah, it all makes sense. And her, like, you know, having clothing, designing dreams, which would, would be something that would typically be connected to traditional feminine ideals. Yeah, it's just, it all combined together so well. Again, written by men and directed by a man. I am still <laughs> shocked. <sighs> and then the three of them play a game of taboo. One of the most suspenseful scenes in this movie, I must say. And in this scene, Emmett tries to get Howard to guess the answer, Little Women. But for the second word, Emmett is like, Michelle is a... And Howard is supposed to pick up from there. But Howard can only think of gold, child, and little princess. Even when Emmett is like, no, she's older, so she's, uh... And after the time of buzzes and the answer is revealed, Howard is like, next time, try being a little more specific. <laughs> it's like, really? Really? And see, this is another telling moment. Like, Howard is so stuck within his view of women, his misogynistic view of women, that he can't fathom calling a woman a woman. He's like, no, no, a girl, a child, a little princess. And I just feel like it all, it's all wrapped up also around his own feelings towards his daughter as well. Again, like he, he needs to infantilize the women in his life. He needs to take, to take care of them. Agreed. I absolutely agree with that. Like, good God. Like, what was it like to be Megan to, or, or to be the <laughs> wife, to be the wife in that household? Holy crap. So then for Howard, so then when, when it's Howard, he's doing it, and Emmett is supposed to try to guess what the answer is. Howard is like, I'm watching. I'm always watching. And Emmett tries to say, God. Was this a good answer? A good answer. <laughs> but Howard is like, I go wherever I want. I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I see you when you're sleeping. Always watching. I'm always watching. He keeps getting more and more intense. And then Michelle ends up guessing the answer. Santa Claus. Which made me instantly want to see John Goodman as Santa Claus. And then also made me think, is Santa watching me right now? Like, that's kind of scary. Yes, so scary, so scary. <laughs> or also, you know, there's an elf, elf in a shelf, don't forget. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Seriously, though, as even Emmett and Michelle are genuinely scared. They're like, wait, is Howard using this as a way to communicate his suspicions? And even Emmett is like, wait, Howard, I'm not sure if he's trying to say something here. And I would say, I, I wonder, I can't tell if Howard was just being completely oblivious here or if he truly did think something's going on. I don't know. What do you think? He was being completely oblivious. He had no idea what was going on. His idea of Santa is someone who's always watching. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Uh, he's oblivious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's just, you know, I think Howard uh, thinks of himself as so much better than the other two people. Uh, and I think that's he thinks of himself as better than everybody. Uh, you know, that goes back to why he, when he's building this thing. And like I said earlier, like his whole shtick seems to be would be besides the fact that he's like murdering teenage girls. Um, his whole shtick seems to be that he wants to walk out at, of the thing at the end of the apocalypse and be able to say, I told you so. Yeah. So he just thinks he's better than everybody. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a weird guy, man. <laughs> I do wonder, aside from aside from Disney, I wonder if he's killed anyone else. I wonder. I wonder. Makes you think. Oh, so for the game of Taboo, 
it, it, it's kind of funny when he's like, oh, when he's like, oh, it was Emma's turn. It was Emma's turn, though. But hey, he's, he's keeping that point. And Michelle is just like, oh yeah, sure, you, you deserve it. And then Michelle, we cut to Michelle in a room working on her hazmat suit. She hears some noises outside and she calls for Emmett. And then Howard brings her out. He shows her and Emmett a barrel that they move into the bathroom and it's this barrel of perchloric acid, which he says is a precursor to ammonium perchlorate, a fuel that's used to launch naval satellites into orbit. It's highly corrosive, dissolves most biological material on contact. And then, Howard reveals that he's on to Michelle and Emmett. He found their supplies, the scissors, the utility knife, and he threatens them to tell the truth, and then Emmett says, to save Michelle, all the scheming was him. He wanted to steal Howard's gun in order to impress Michelle. He apologizes. Howard apparently forgives him. It looks all peaceful now. And then he shoots Emmett and the fucking face, point blank. Yeah, the fact that they were able to get away with that in a PG-13 movie by not really showing anything, but showing the aftermath, yeah. that was brutal. I think not seeing it, it makes it more brutal than it would be if we got to witness most of it. Yeah, it I, it I definitely agree. was a shock, and it, it, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, yep. it's on now. Yep. And just, and the sound design. I love the sound design and the scene. As it pulls out a lot of the sound here, it feels like it's really, it feels like it's supposed to be immersing us in Michelle's perspective here, as she is just like, what the fuck just happened? And she's processing this horrific event. And Howard is trying to hug her. Yeah. And of course, like Howard's doing that. Like, oh, Howard is like, I can protect you. I'm your savior. Come here, come here. You know, my my pseudo daughter, my daughter replacement. There's even a shot. We do we do see a shot though of the blood on the wall. And I think there's even like there was a bullet, like the bullet made a big hole in the wall. Yeah. So we know that Emmett is not gonna stand up and be like, I'm okay. You know, yeah. you, you know that yeah. Emmett is gone, gone for good. And I agree with you. I love the choice of a. Uh, sound design in that scene where she's just like he was such a nice guy and now he's dead what is going to happen next i love the mm-hmm. way that they they kind of closed in on her yeah. during that scene yeah yes. uh, again the tactical mirrors of this movie i again so tactically impressive yes yes but yeah so howard has now destroyed a stretch one stretch to his authority here later on howard brings michelle ice cream so they can have dessert before dinner and also, he's all shaved. He's all shaved here. Oh, my God. Can I tell you, that's like just when you thought Howard just couldn't get any more freakier, him showing up clean shaven with ice cream, like, here you go. I'm like, oh, my God. This yeah. Guy. Yeah. And he asked if she, if she prefers the cone or the ball. And when she doesn't answer, he chooses the ball for her because that's what Megan preferred. The cones were too messy for her. So he is just really shaping her, trying to shape Michelle into his daughter replacement. And Howard acknowledges that the situation isn't easy for Michelle, but he wants them to be a happy family. Yeah, sure, go for that goal, Howard. (laughs) And then Michelle, when she's looking through Emmett's wallet, she finds his bus ticket. Oh, his bus ticket he could have used for the scholarship. And then she puts on a gritty face and works on her biohazard suit some more. And she pretends to be all casual in her room when Howard comes in to announce dinner time. And then a screw falls out of the vent. <laughs> that same vent, by the way, where she put uh, the, the towel in earlier to set off the fire alarm. That same vent. Because that's where she hid the mask for her suit. And Howard pokes around it, doesn't find the mask, but 
he does spy the suit poking out from underneath her makeshift bed. So that's when she gets the hell out of her room, closes the door, runs out, passes by Emma's remains, melting away into perchloric acid. Yes. Uh, we see we see it too for a second. We see his meaty body remains. Oh no. Yeah. And then an infuriated Howard follows after her. Then she kicks over the perchloric acid barrel, burning Howard. And she manages, like, holy crap, Michelle, you, you managed to monkey swing your way over him and through the door. <laughs> the way that the floor is built, there's like this hardwood carpet border that stops the acid from spreading farther into the room outside. Right. Which, yeah. which means it gives a safe, a safe surface for Michelle to land on. So convenient. <laughs> and the acid causes an electrical fire. And meanwhile, Michelle grabs her half-bad suit from her room, and then runs back in, and Howard comes in, so she has to, like, pull down this big shelf on top of him to pin him down. And by the way, that acid, it's creeping over the side of his face. It's eating away at his flesh. Ugh, ugh. And then she clambers up into her vents, climbing through the duct, has to deal with Howard some more, when he takes a few stabs through the duct with a knife. And impales her leg, and he's begging her to stay with him. He's like, no, you don't know what's out there. Like, yeah, of course he want to trap her in here with you. When there's a fucking fire. <laughs> but she frees herself from him, crawls away to the filtration unit chamber, puts on her hazmat suit, again, while the fire is raging on, climbs up the ladder to the hatch, uses that freezing spray she stole from Howard on the padlock, which breaks after several hits. And she climbs up to the surface, finally, uh, and looks around, goes over to Howard's truck. But as she leans inside, she like, cuts her suit on the truck, opening up his leak. Duct tape's it closed fast, though. Love me some duct tape. Very useful. <laughs> it's either that or flex seal. You gotta use one or the other. Yes. But then she sees birds flying up above. So she tests things out by removing her mask, and she's able to safely breathe the air. So see how would see so your paranoia was not fully proven right here. It was actually mm-hmm. safe up here. Yeah, her performance during that scene where she takes off the mask and realizes that she can breathe, like the joy and just kind yeah. of like amazement on her face that she plays and she gets like that one tear that comes out. I'm like, oh, she is giving yeah. it for this one like quiet scene. Her performance, particularly, like she's great throughout the movie, but her performance at the beginning and the end. Really, that's what she really shows through because the beginning and the end hinge so much on her specifically. Yes. And specifically, her when she's being silent, pretty much. Like, no dialogue, aside from maybe some, like, some screams, some grunts, some other no- human noises, but, ugh, lovely. Also, did you notice the mask? The mask has, like, this little device attached to it. It looks like one of those fragrance products you get from someplace like Airwick. Hmm. Was- I don't know. I didn't, I didn't really notice it at all. Yeah, it was just, it was just like this, this little device that I was, I'm assuming would be important to breathe, like, you know, be able to breathe oxygen mm-hmm. in the mask. And then Michelle sees this aircraft of some sort flying off in the distance, <laughs> and then she hears noises from the bunker. Then we see an explosion coming from inside the entry shed for the bunker. That's followed by a second explosion, just bursting right out of the bunker into the air. And then the aircraft zooms on over to this area, revealing itself to be a full-on biomechanical spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> That's when we're getting into the science fiction shit here. So, 
But it's editing. Might as well ask a question now, you know, since we can get into more details, you know? What do you think? At this point in the movie, I'm like, wait, what is happening now? Like, I was enjoying the the thrill of the suspenseful stuff that was happening with Howard. But now we're, like, in, you know, I guess we're in where I wanted, what I was asking for, the Cloverfield stuff. But it wasn't what I was familiar with. So I wasn't sure what, I wasn't sure how to feel during the scene. Because, the you know, whatever you're looking at, it isn't what you saw before. So I'm like, what is happening now? I absolutely love this coming out at the end because you just had the feeling of Howard was wrong. So you were a hundred percent on her side because she took off the thing. She can breathe. You're like, Oh my God, everything that guy said was wrong. He made it all up. He's a creepy weirdo. But then this happens. You're like, well, wait a minute. Maybe he wasn't a hundred percent wrong. (laughs) He's like 95% wrong of everything he does, but he, was right about the fact that something was going on that was not kosher and so now she has to deal with that and there's no going back the the place just blew up it's not like she killed howard and then can just go back down in there drag his body out and hide in there or anything it's gone it's blown up so it it puts her in a terrible situation and it's pretty scary it's scary to see it it, it happen because you're like holy crap he wasn't 100% wrong or lying. So I love it. I know it gets a little weird after you've just watched more of a claustrophobic thriller to now have spaceships flying around. <laughs> but I think it works uh, in this movie. Yeah, for me personally, I I really, I love where it goes. I know it's a, it's a wild turn. It's a wild turn, but it does help that this is part of the Cloverfield universe. So that does set my expectations there on top of that. It's just nice to see a movie that has been just giving us some good slow, some good suspense, and then holy fuck, it takes this turn into dealing with dealing with the, the alien spacecraft and this other alien creature that looks like it has like this worm appendage thingamajig that reminds me of one of those, of those big worms from Peter Jackson's King Kong. You know, like the worms that, that ate up Andy Serkis' human character. A good creature feature. At the end here, oh, I just, oh, it, it just clicks with me. It clicks with me. <laughs> and Michelle tries to escape in her own car, but its alarm goes off, and she has to go for shelter inside the house. There's a burnt body inside. I think probably radiation burnt body. And she's watching this quadrupedal a- a- alien outside, just creeping around, moving her car, then moving over the building. It almost finds her inside, but she's able to get her teeth out in time to turn off the alarm, the car alarm, distracting the alien. And again, like, it has this, like, real worm head appendage. Ugh. Just, like, yeah. flying around, poking through the little door. And then Michelle gets, gets out of that house, goes towards this other building, and is trying to call for help. Even though I am like, wait, why would you think someone would, would be here? I feel like there would be no one else here. I don't know. Well, you know, when you're faced with, you know, crazy guys in bunkers and flying spaceships, you just, you're grasping at straws at that point. <laughs> you're really looking for help from anywhere. I suppose. Mm-hmm. But, oh dear, the, the spacecraft comes back to spray down the whole place with green gas. So she has to rush back to a mask, put that on, and protect herself from the gas. But then as she goes in the Howard truck, the alien attacks her, sucks off her mask, but she's able to ward it off, thankfully. And then the spacecraft dishes out some tentacles to pack off the truck. And it's 
slowly pulling it up towards his big mouth inside the craft. But she brings back the scotch because the scotch is still here, thankfully. Thank God it wasn't brought inside. She uses the scotch and turns it. She gets the paper. She gets her lighter, turns it into a Molotov cocktail. Then she hurls up into the craft maw, exploding it. And she falls back down inside the truck. And holy crap. And, uh, I, I love it. I love her just showing off more of a badassery here. Lovely. Yeah, it did seem like she kind of turned into a superhero a little bit, or a, a little, maybe like a, a little, like a, a Indiana Jones slash MacGyver. I mean, you know, we've we've spent the whole movie saying how clever she is, mm-hmm. and now she's like, "Oh, I have to be clever because I am being picked up by a spaceship with tentacles." <laughs> but well, also, you know, she she finally got out of that stupid thing, and then she's gonna die like five feet from the door. Like, I don't think so. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> like, she's she's got to she she had to fight. You know, yeah, fight her flight and she had to fight so. yeah she's gonna water off the aliens she's gonna use a Molotov cocktail destroy the spacecraft and apparently though there was an extra scene of her fighting off the alien again after the truck had fallen down but that scene got cut out because the movie's crew just felt like oh this is unnecessary we don't need this well it's true i don't think we do need more stuff just keep it tight <laughs> and she gets back into her own car now Drives off, sideswipes a mailbox along the way, and the mailbox, this is, it has 10 Cloverfield on it. Yes, yeah. which is more than the first movie, because I, I think you can watch the entire first movie and not know what Cloverfield is at all. Like they, I don't think they yeah. ever mention it. So at least in this one, they're like, okay, they don't. this is the reason why it's called this, why it's called 10 Cloverfield. Yeah, which is like, why don't they mention what Cloverfield is about in that first movie? Because they don't, they don't, but uh, oh well. Then, as she's driving along, she tunes into a transmission over the radio that's instructing survivors to seek shelter in Baton Rouge, then calling in people with medical training or combat experience to aid survivors in Houston. And Michelle was initially heading to Baton Rouge, but now she takes a moment to think, and she's like, you know what, I'm gonna do it, and she turns for Houston. And that's her arc, she isn't running away, like what she's done before with Ben, or when she saw her dad abusing his daughter. No, no, she's gonna... She's com- completing her character arc here. <laughs> and as she heads to Houston, a flash of lightning in the distance shows the silhouette of another spacecraft up in the sky. That's the end. <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane. What do you think? I love it. I, I, I like it quite a bit. Even like talking through it with you guys makes me like it more. Mark, it, I'm sure it improved your score talking through it. It did. The movie is a lot you know, I enjoyed the complexity of it before, but having it broken down, I can see it a little bit better now. So I, I still enjoy like the the main story of it. Uh, it still feels like there's an alternate universe where she gets out and you know she's fine. <laughs> she just gets in her car and drives away. And in summer, J.J. Abrams is like, "All right, we got to put Slusho, Kelvin, and then we got to put some creatures on the other side of it." And that's how you make a movie, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, such a fun time in this movie. Some somehow Cloverfield survived. <laughs> <laughs> somehow Cloverfield returned. Cloverfield returned. Yes. Uh, this yeah, this movie. I just again had such a great time with it. Really fun and thrilling, suspenseful. It's clever, tactically excellent. I'm so glad it's able to hold up so well. 
And like I said before, I'm all right, honestly, with it being part of the Cloverfield universe because, again, it gets more eyes on it. I will say, though, so apparently there's this deep-sea exploration and mining company called Tagrato in the Cloverfield universe. And Howard, it's like, apparently it has like a, it's got like little, little bits and pieces of it in the Cloverfield movie. So, for example, Howard worked for this company, the satellite that falls, that we see falling at the end of Cloverfield, the first movie, came from, from this company. Apparently, it's also part of Cloverfield Paradox, sort of creates little connections between the movies. And uh, I'll watch the Cloverfield Paradox sometime. I do want to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you right now, dude, it is nowhere near as thoughtful and insightful and as uh, enriched as this story is. Nowhere I'm, near that. I'm sure. I'm very sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely a reason we're still waiting for Cloverfield 4. Yeah. <laughs> so, even though Overlord was supposed to be uh, Cloverfield 4. Oh, but. that's right. That's right. So oh. you're, you're, an indie, you're an indie producer. You're making a movie. You're like, oh, this is cool. And all of a sudden, J.J. Abrams sticks his head in the door and he's like, hey, you mind if we throw a little Cloverfield monster in there? Eh, might as well. Might as well take it. So luckily, the Overlord, they were able to stop him. Cut the check. That's all that matters. Oh. <laughs> uh, oh. Okay, so I'm just looking through some trivia here. There's apparently a theory that a character named Mark Stambler in the Cloverfield Paradox might be a brother of Howard. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I think there was a, I think there was another um, conspiracy guy in that movie, if I, if I remember correctly. And that would make Ooh. sense. And then Suzanne Cryer, who plays the woman, who plays Leslie, she had also played a newscaster in the Cloverfield Paradox. Oh, they shot a more graphic version of Emmett being shot in the head, and it was horrifying. John Gallagher Jr.'s girlfriend was visiting the set that day and became very emotional at watching her boyfriend be murdered. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> oh yeah, Slusho. The Slusho brand Slusho from Cloverfield appeared in the window of a convenience store in 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yeah, yeah. Slusho makes an appearance in almost every J.J. Abrams thing. When it popped up in Star Trek, I was like, all right, dude, you're you're pushing it too far. Yeah. Didn't make it into Star Wars, though, right? If you look very... No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you look very closely at uh, Emperor Palpatine's throne. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's sipping out a Slusho. Uh, that's right. <laughs> that's tucked off to the side. You, you want to see Palpatine just relaxing there with a, with a, nice, a, nice, old, a nice old drink, Slusho. I would have liked uh, Ray to like walk in there at the end and he's just sitting there drinking a slush out and she's like, what is this? He's like, hey, man, somehow I returned, you know? <laughs> and the cast members weren't told the title of this movie during production to preserve the secret for as long as possible. Yeah, apparently very secretive, the production behind this movie. Yeah, a lot like the first one. They just kind of dropped the trailer and it like comes out next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? Well, that's how the third one was. It was during the Super Bowl that year. They they dropped the trailer and it said on Netflix after the game. Yeah. <laughs> Which sucked because that the Patriots lost that game and I was already in a bad oh, mood. No. And then I had, to, I had to sit there for another two hours in front of my TV and watch a bad Clover. Oh, no. <laughs> but for the Cloverfield Paradox, apparently they did also have a, a website built up for it. Oh, yeah. A website presenting itself as the home of a company called Tagurato. A hidden message that was decoded by internet sleuths on Reddit. Yeah, nobody has time for that. I'm just like, just give me the movie. <laughs> I don't have time to go on websites and look for clues for stuff like that. Just give me the movie. Don't you want that though? Don't you want the puzzles, the riddles? 
nope give me give me the movie and a slush old t-shirt and then i'm good that's all i need <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that uh, and then one more thing i'll say here for the trivia is that the movie was shot in chronological order aside from a few reshoots mostly insert shots for example in the shot of howard asking michelle how's it going through the vent into air shaft john goodman was wearing a fake beard because he had shaved it off oh nice Ooh. Okay, shave, shave off. Shave off, that's right. Oh, well, that is 10 Cloverfield Lane. Such a wonderful little movie. Oh, smart, tense, feminist. Yes. Oh, do we have any more thoughts to offer on it? I, I really like this movie. Uh, I, Mark, I hope it changed your mind. I, I like this movie. I was just a little um, dismayed by the turn of events towards the end of it. But, you know, you guys didn't. You guys didn't change that aspect of it for me, but you did change the other part of it. So I enjoyed the movie movie a little bit more. It still feels like someone had a really cool concept about a girl in a bunker with John Goodman. And then at the beginning, they threw in a slush show and a Kelvin reference. And then at the end, they threw in some monsters. I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you there. I'm just saying I, I like it. Thank <laughs> you. I, I, I sided with, yeah. with, uh, with Joey here. Good. That doesn't happen very often in my life, so I'm glad someone sides with me. <laughs> uh, well, that's Ten Cloverfield Lane. So we've done a whole breakdown for that wonderful movie. So now it's time for us to segue onwards to good words. This is the segment where we each get to recommend something—a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, music, anything we want. So, Zoe, let's kick off with you first. What's your good word? All right. So. I have two things, and they're both completely diametrically opposed to each other, Ooh. so uh, they're both different things. Uh, one, I just want to shout out uh, one of my favorite bands that I've discovered in the last, like, 12, 13 months has a new song out. Uh, it's a ska band called Bite Me Bambi, uh, and they have a new song called Bad Boyfriend, which is awesome. So uh, jump on YouTube and check it out. Uh, if you are old like me, uh, it sounds a lot. It is a lot of uh, Dancehall Crashers vibe. That means absolutely nothing to Arthur. Um, <laughs> Mark, did you, did you ever listen to Dancehall Crashers? Uh, no, I'm afraid not. Oh, my God. They were awesome. Uh, third wave ska band with two girls uh, as singers. Um, and this has a vibe like that. So if you ha have any idea what I'm talking about out there in podcast land, uh, check out a uh, new song by Bite Me Bambi. Uh, and, and then if you like weird vibe stuff, um, my favorite book of all time is uh, House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Uh, are there, have you ever read that? I haven't. We've actually talked about this book before. I remember this. And I remember you yes. I, I remember you talked about this book, and I haven't read it yet, but I want to. It looks very uh, interesting. I'm always going to throw it out there when it's recommendations that don't have to be movie-related. Um, it's hard to describe, but it's about a guy who finds a video of a documentary about a family whose house is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And machinations happen with all sorts of creepy, weird stuff. And they play a lot with like the way the pages are set up and the print is done and how you read the book, like turning it upside down and backwards and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's a freaking masterpiece of like weird, creepy storytelling. And he's never been able to write another book as good because <laughs> he just knocked it out of the park on the first one. But uh, it, it's out there. You can get it on Amazon or wherever. So I, I definitely recommend people out there check that if you're looking for a cool book to read. 
And I hope they never make a movie out of it because to me it's something unfilmable and it yeah. would just be awful. So yeah. just from what I know about it, it's like you know, yeah, yeah, you cannot adapt this. No, it's only a great right. book. It, 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 I've the last books that I read that I was like, this is unfilmable was uh, Annihilation, and oh. that movie was not good, <laughs> oh. and it misses so, so many nuances of the book. Like, oh I, my god! And then I like the she's movie. hula dancing with Pepsi Man at the end of the movie, and I'm just like, this is awful. Like, this is not what I read. So. I like the movie. I must say, I I I enjoy both Annihilation the book and Annihilation the movie. Personally. I mean, it's as good as it was gonna get for something unfilmable, but I was just kind of disappointed. So. Yeah. I, I got that. I got that. I do want to read more of the the Southern Reach books, so. though. Yeah, they're good. The whole trilogy is good. So it, it's definitely worth checking out. It's just, I don't know. I just didn't think the movie lived up to it. But that's my my recommendations. Nice, nice. And now, Mark, you're a good word. Uh, yeah, so I also have a couple of recommendations. Uh, we already mentioned them before. But uh, if you have YouTube, you can watch Cloverfield 1 and 10 Cloverfield Lane. Uh, and Netflix, I think, still has Cloverfield Paradox. So the Cloverfield uh, universe is alive and kicking. <laughs> uh, they did announce that Cloverfield 4 is in the way. I think that they're going to make a sequel to 10 Cloverfield Lane uh, with uh, to see what's happening with Michelle. I know Dan. Yeah. Dan oh, what's really? Uh, yeah, the, the last thing I remember them saying was that we're not going to talk about it ever again because we want everything to be a surprise going forward. So we're just letting you know we're working on it, and we'll, you'll find out a week before it comes out when the trailer drops. <laughs> Great. So if, you want, if you're watching the Super Bowl this year, <laughs> stay tuned. Oh, but they might have already oh. filmed it. Um, nice. So yeah, nice. If you, if you want to get caught up on the Cloverfield thing, uh, the YouTube is there. Uh, also, one of my favorite movies that came out this year is now streaming on Paramount Plus. It is Bottoms, <laughs> not Bottoms. Um. Calm down. <laughs> Bottoms is lovely. It's one of my top ten movies of 2023. Yes, oh, yes. <laughs> is it number one, Arthur? Is it? Is it? Does it make the top five? Uh, you know, let me double check. I've forgotten. <laughs> He's gonna check. I've forgotten <laughs> the ranking because. Oh no. Let me see. I did, I did a whole I'm podcast. Cheering. I did a whole podcast on my top ten. I'm hoping. I'm hoping for top five just to make Mark angry. <laughs> I did a whole podcast on my top ten. It is number five. Yes. No. Oh my god. You gotta watch that, Mark. Come on. Oh, it, right. it is. Right. It is such a hilarious time. Oh my god. Oh, the the, the comedy, the jokes, and it gets so weird, so bizarrely humorous. The acting. Oh, just. Oh my god, and and uh, bottoms, and oh, such, such a great queer time, love it. Oh. <laughs> there you go, Mark. You you and your girl got to sit down and watch that soon. All right, I will reserve my um my opinions until after I see it. I'll even let you. I'll even agree to let you take the rental fee from Amazon out of the podcast money. <laughs> like, I just want you to watch it. Let's, I, let's, not, let's not get too crazy. Here. I'm shocked. Yeah. I'm shocked. Mark hasn't seen it yet, though. I mean. It was just when we did it on our show, it was just a weird week where neither Mark or Aubrey were available. And well, I think Mark wasn't available and Aubrey, it wasn't playing within like an hour drive of her. So I had two guests <laughs> and they just both never saw it because who the hell has time to watch things for pleasure? You know? <laughs> oh, right, no. exactly. Sorry to stomp all over your picks, Mark. You can <laughs> to, continue now. To talk about bottoms. That's okay. I talked about Rise of Skywalker, so we're even. Uh, <laughs> So my- somehow bottoms returned. <laughs> yeah, bottoms. It beat out it beat out John Wick chapter four in my top ten. Wow. Oh you 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 
you, both of you guys are just talking crazy talk right now. <laughs> Me and Arthur are on the same wavelength. So. <laughs> yes. All right. So my uh, so yes, yeah, so my my pick is or my good word is a movie that came out uh, this year. One of my favorite action movies that came out this year. That's not John Wick. It is Mission Impossible: Colon Dead Reckoning hyphen Part One. Uh, <laughs> even though it's not they. If you notice now, if anyone's paying attention now, it, the name of the movie has changed. It's just Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. It got rid of the part one. Wait, what? Wait, what? Yeah, if you look it up on Paramount Plus right now, it's called Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. That's it. There's no part one. They did a um, uh, like a Spider-Man thing where they got rid of the part one, and there's just the movie's going to stand by itself. I think the next movie is going to be Mission Impossible Alive Reckoning or Wait, <laughs> they Impossible. completely ruined our joke. Like how are we supposed to say Mission Impossible colon Dead Reckoning hyphen part 1 now? We can't. When I look it up on Wikipedia, it still has Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part 1. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything all all of the press material, all of the posters, everything from yesterday behind is all part you'll see part 1 and everything. If you go to Paramount right now and you look up Mission Impossible, Dead oh. Reckoning, that's all it's going to say is Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning. It's kind of like when they changed okay. they changed the title of Birds of Prey to, hey, remember you like Margot Robbie in Hot Pants? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Exactly. And when they changed uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I refuse to recognize that. <laughs> understandable. Understandable. Oh, my God. So, anyway, yeah. Oh, oh. I, I love that movie. I thought it was great. It's streaming on uh, Paramount Plus right now. So check it out if you haven't seen it. Good, yeah. I'll, I'll vouch for that. I'll vouch for that. <laughs> Very. I, oh, the, the train sequence, especially. Oh. It's it's worth it for Haley Atwell alone. So. Yes. Okay. So that's your, that's your <laughs> good word. And the Dead Reckoning and also the other Cloverfield movies. Bye. And Bottoms. Bottoms. He really wants everyone to watch Bottoms. Eh? <gasps> uh, all right. So... That's your good word. Now, my good word. I'm going with a book here. A book called A Place for Vanishing by Anne Freistat. This is a YA, gothic, haunted house horror book that follows Libby, a teenage girl who recently got diagnosed with uh, cyclothymia and has been undergoing some heavy shit. And she and her sister and her mom they have moved from their original home into the mom's childhood home. And this home, this new home that they're in, it's got some strange things going on. Bugs everywhere, blue roses filling out the garden, stories of people who, who lived in the house and then vanished, including the original owners who hosted these infamous masked seances. And Libby embarks on a mission to get to the bottom of this matter to uncover the truth behind this creepy old house. This book just really enthralled me the whole way through. You want something that is just eerie, that's full of mood, it just drifts with this poor paranormal mood, and it unrolls all of that in a slow burn fashion. I would definitely recommend this book, and I really like being able to connect with Libby as this sympathetic protagonist who's just having to deal with all of this crap, having to deal with dysfunctional family crap and their own mental health having to uncover this whole mystery. And the third act, when it gets to the, into the third act, like before that, it's already getting, getting cre- pretty creepy. But, it, but then the third act kicks in. And it's just really, it's like, oh my god, there's some like bo- straight-up body horror going on. And it gets so damn terrifying. 
my only criticism I'd have for the book is that I had seen other reviewers on Goodreads criticize the book for uh, its depiction of Libby's psychosomia, or also known as bipolar treat disorder. And I can't speak on this matter because I'm, I'm not bipolar, so I can't have a personal perspective on this. But I saw other reviewers criticize the book for coming across as poorly researched in regards to how it presents Libby's mental health and presents other heavy shit that goes on in her life. So, again, I, I don't have a personal perspective on this, so I can't speak on it, and there weren't elements that jumped out at me. Again, probably because I, didn't, I don't have that intimate perspective on, on psychothymia, but that's just something to know going forward, to inform yourself with if you want to read this book. Um, well, when, when you said A Place for the Vanishing, I thought it was about someone that worked at a video store that was alphabetizing the movies, but... Oh. Um... Wait, 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 what is... I've heard of that. That's a movie, right? Yeah, with uh, well, there was a Mark will have to back me up on this, but um, it uh, was it Keith or Sutherland and his wife got kidnapped. It was a remake of uh, an old Christmas of the original one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay, okay, interesting. Don't don't watch that. It's depressing as hell. So. Oh, <laughs> it's not. It is not a fun watch. But what <laughs> don't if, sit down with your friends. What if I like to be depressed though? All right. Well, you know, then there you go. Uh, but yeah, so again, you know, that's my only like criticism esque sort of aspect for this book, how it presents mental health. Again, collecting from other reviewers on Goodreads. Otherwise, I really found this to be a strong, a strong read. There's even also a, a there's also a romantic subplot that didn't bug me. You know what? Sometimes when I read a story, sometimes the romantic subplot bugs me. Sometimes it feels unnecessary or unconvincing. But this one, I was invested in the romantic subplot. So. Yeah, this book, A Place for Vanishing by Anne Freistat. I really enjoyed it. And there's another book by, by the same author, What We Harvest, which also looks like, like a gothic horror film. I have What We Harvest by Anne Freistat on my KBR piles. But here, my good word, A Place for Vanishing. And now we have presented all our good words. Yay! We presented our good words. Also gave some love over the bottoms. Happy about that. And now, <laughs> the, uh, the two of you, thank you so much for coming on to my show, especially uh, Mike coming here for the first time. And now you get to promote yourselves, promote your podcast. Where can people find you online? You, you want to do that, Mark? Or you want me to do it? Uh, you can go ahead and do it, Joey. All right, cool. All right, well, myself, Mark Ellis, our co-host Aubrey, we are found on the So Wizard podcast. Uh, we are a weekly new release movie review podcast. Uh, we're coming up on episode 500, which will be 500 weeks in a row with no breaks, Damn. no seasons, no weeks off. Uh, and we just review movies every single week. Uh, sometimes, like I said, we slip in TV shows if they are in the genre that we cover, which is going to be your nerdy stuff, um, you know, superheroes, action, horror but we do do some other weird stuff. We just did the Mean Girls musical um, as we record this because I, I love that original Mean Girls. We wanted to have fun and go see it. So it's not always nerdy genre stuff, but I would say like 99% nerdy genre stuff. Um, you can find everything at SoWizardPodcast.com. We have our YouTube channel, which is run by our fourth member, Adam. Um, that's where you're going to find interviews, retrospectives, more uh, movie reviews, comic book reviews, all sorts of cool stuff on our YouTube channel. And then uh, we had all our socials. So follow us on all the socials. Uh, TikTok's the big one that I've been really focusing on in the last maybe year or so. And that's where you'll find even more reviews of stuff. I do a lot of comic book reviews on there and unboxings. So we have a whole gambit of things you can check us out. But the main thing will be the podcast and the YouTube channel. 
Um, you'll find me and Mark there every single week talking about movies. Good, good, yeah. Oh, so your podcast has been running on for so long. I'm very proud of you for that. <laughs> yes. 500 episodes is coming up, and then in August, we'll hit our 10-year anniversary. Yes. So. And, I, and I, I should note that I've been on Star Wizard a couple times to cover yep. The Mandalorian Season 3, and then uh, No One Will Save You. Right. And, you know, we always need guests. Um, so you will be on again in the future, of course, oh, yeah. this year. Yeah, there's yeah. Our, our co-host, Aubrey, does not do horror movies in any way, shape or form. Or there's other things I know. I just know she's going to hate it. So, like, she doesn't really like action movies. So, if, yeah. you know, John Wick Chapter 4, there was absolutely no point in making her go see a three-hour action movie. So we're going to get a, a guest. Yeah. Um, especially, so there, there will be opportunities. Especially <laughs> for, like, streaming stuff. Because sometimes I can't go to the theater right away to see something. Yep. But streaming... Then it's like, oh, yeah, I can watch that very easily. Right. And that's always our, our number one issue when we do try to reach out for guest hosts on things is not everyone's as nuts as we are. So not everybody I can say, hey, Arthur, can you go to the movies on Saturday and then be ready to record Monday night? Uh, because we have to edit, get it out on Tuesday into Wednesday and then go to the movies next week. <laughs> God, you're wild. It sounds awful when I say that. You're wild. Doesn't it sound bad when I say that, Mark? Like, it, it, it sounds awful, right? It's, it sounds awful and it feels awful, yes. <laughs> but props to you for keeping up the schedule, Mark. We try. We try. Yeah. Uh, also, I want to say the vanishing. It was the vanishing you were referring to earlier with Kiefer Sutherland, Jeff Bridges, yep. Nancy Chavez, and Sandra Bullock remake of the vanishing from 1988. Which definitely now, now that I've looked this up, yes, the vanishing has been on my uh, watch list for a while. Both movies. Again, I love me some dark shit, some bleak shit. So, <laughs> I mean, I mean well, go, I, I'm a fan of stuff like you know, of Seven, and I saw the Devil. So. Okay, well, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, I saw the devil. I may cover that on the show, on the podcast one day. I may. Have fun. <laughs> Seven, definitely. Seven is absolutely on my on my podcast list. Uh, yeah, so as for my socials, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 2 underscore sounds critic. You can follow my personal accounts on Twitter, Good Pods, StoryGraph, Letterboxd, and TikTok at Arthur underscore and 18. You can find me on Goodreads at Arthur Howell. If you want to email me, you can reach me at email at twocentscritic at yahoo.com. You can check out my blog at twocentscritic.com. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, Good Pods, CastBox, all of those services. And make sure you do the ratings and reviews, especially because they help spread us to more listeners, please, to more of the human ears around the world. And once again, so much gratitude to you, Joey and Mike, for joining the Two Cents Critic crew here. Anytime. Yeah, dude, at least it was a really good movie. Uh, I'm going to hold my judgment on bottoms, but at least this one was a really good movie. <laughs> so so we'll be back to watch Showgirls with you in the future. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, such a trip. <laughs> and until next time, stay healthy and stay strong.